You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 116, American Terrorist in Britain. Last week, I discussed some of the troubles Silas Dean had in France trying to get military supplies and French officers to America. Around the same time Silas Dean was trying to get the first ships out of port in November 1776, a man named James Aiken knocked on his door. Aiken told Dean that he fought for the British under Lord Dunmore in Virginia the year before. He had been treated poorly and now wanted to work for the Patriot cause. This 25-year-old seemed rather disheveled and tended to ramble on, but he offered an interesting plan. Aitken had developed a device that would allow the user to set it, then, after a delay of several hours, it would burst into flame. Aitken proposed to enter the British dockyards in England, set multiple devices, and escape before the fires broke out, destroying the dockyard. This would cripple the British naval operations. It seemed like a pretty daring and ambitious plan, but the risk really just fell on Aiken. If he was willing to attempt this massive sabotage campaign on his own, why not let him try? Dean gave the man travel expenses back to England and told him to contact his friend Edward Bancroft in London if he ran into trouble. Aiken's story really begins back in Scotland. He was born in Edinburgh in 1752. As the eighth of twelve children, he probably didn't stand out very much. His father was a smith, meaning he had a decent trade, but still had difficulty supporting his large family. In any event, his father died when James was only seven. In an age when women typically did not work outside the home, his widowed mother could not support the family. There was no safety net at the time, so the family was largely on its own. Even for intact families, times were tough. Edinburgh saw several food riots in the 1760s. Poor harvests had increased food prices to the point where many were starving to death. At age nine, James caught a break. He was admitted to the George Harriet's Hospital, which, despite its name, was a school. It had been established more than a century earlier for young fatherless boys whose fathers had been town burgesses. A burgess included craft workers such as James's father. The result was that James could get an education and sufficient food. If he did well at his studies, he might even get a scholarship to the University of Edinburgh. Unfortunately, James did not do so well in his studies. He did learn to read and write and listened to many sermons by the Reverend John Erskine, 
who was a radical Whig, very sympathetic to the plight of the colonists in America. By age 14, the administration decided that James was not university material. Instead, they would apprentice him to a trade. The school thought he should become a house painter. In earlier centuries, a painter was a craftsman, since few people knew how to make paint. But by the mid-1700s, businesses were producing paint on a larger scale. House painters did not have to make their own paint, and therefore really didn't need much training. There were already more painters than needed. It does not seem like a good career goal for anyone at the time. Forcing a boy into a seven-year apprenticeship to learn how to paint a house was really more just about forcing him into involuntary labor for a long time. But Aitken went into it, and finally at age 20, he finished his apprenticeship and became a journeyman painter. In 1772, his school gave him five pounds sterling to get him started in life and sent him out into the world. Aitken showed no interest in working as a painter. Even if he had, there just wasn't much of a market for one. He had expressed interest in becoming a military officer, but there was no way he could afford to buy a commission. Instead, the young man hit the road and set out for London to seek his fortune. Londoners, however, were not terribly fond of Scotsmen. They considered them ill-mannered and, as foreigners, taking away jobs from Englishmen. Aiken did find a few odd jobs, but not enough to survive. After a time, he embarked on a new career, highway robbery. He purchased a pair of pistols and held up coaches on the roads in and out of London. He also took up shoplifting and burglary. Even a life of crime did not produce much and always presented the danger of being hanged. Continuing in this way could not end well. The following year, in 1773, Aitken decided to try his luck in America. Since he was broke, he made arrangements to serve as an indentured servant. A ship would pay his passage, which included food and clothing for the journey. They would then auction him off for a period of years to someone willing to buy his indenture and pay for the journey. Of course, conditions aboard ship were pretty terrible. Food and water were poor and inadequate. It was not unusual for a fair percentage of passengers to die from the poor conditions during the crossing. Aiken reached Jamestown, Virginia, and he was auctioned off to a plantation owner. The details of Aiken's time in America are rather sketchy. Much of what we know comes from his own accounts, in which he tried to appear much more impressive than was probably the case. He went to work as a common field hand, working alongside black slaves. In many accounts, slaves received better treatment than indentured servants. This was because they represented a larger investment for the owner. An owner could invest the time to train slaves in more skilled work since the slave would be around for life. The indentured servant would only be around for a few years, meaning that one had to get as much labor out of him as possible during the indenture period. Hard work as a field laborer was not something Aiken would tolerate. He spent his first few weeks in America sick, perhaps from his journey, or more likely from the range of diseases on the plantation. 
Almost as soon as he was well, though, Aiken ran away from his indenture. This was no easy task. Most of Virginia was set up to prevent slaves and servants from escaping. Aiken's clothing and accent would have identified him as a servant, meaning he would have to have a pass from his master. Since he was literate enough, he could have forged such a pass. Even so, most who tried to escape were unsuccessful. It's pretty impressive that he did make his escape on his first try in a strange land. However he did it, Aiken says that he found his way to Philadelphia, but could not find work or anything else to support himself there. After a few months, he traveled to Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and then to New York City. Aiken also claims that he traveled to Boston in time to participate in the Boston Tea Party. Now, this is highly unlikely. He probably made this claim only to enhance his reputation and association with the Patriot cause later in his life. I've seen no good evidence that he made it to Boston at all, let alone participated in the Tea Party. By early 1775, anti-Scottish sentiment swept through most of the colonies. Scots tended to be Tories, who became very unwelcome in the months leading up to war. As I mentioned, Aiken also makes the claim that he fought for Lord Dunmore, the Loyalist Governor of Virginia. This could be as part of the force that fought the Indians in Lord Dunmore's War of 1774, or perhaps with the Loyalists fighting for the Governor in 1775. Again, though, it's not clear at all whether Aiken was just making up his participation in events that he read about in the newspaper. Whatever his actual activities, by 1775, Aiken found himself in North Carolina, along with a number of Scottish loyalists looking for a friendlier location. There was already a large Scottish population in the colony. Once he arrived, though, Aiken decided to head back to England. As ship's captains were hard up for crewmen in South Carolina, it would have been rather easy to find a job on a ship even without any experience. Once back in London, Aiken chose a new profession, bounty jumping. The army was looking to recruit soldiers following the news of Lexington and Concord. Aiken signed up at least three times that year, each time using a false name. He collected a signing bounty and then deserted a few days later. This sort of thing could get you hanged if caught, but Aiken seems to have become comfortable with risking the hangman's noose in order to get by. He spent the rest of 1775 and 76 engaging in a series of street robberies and burglaries across southern England, never staying in one place for too long. Aiken, however, wanted to be more than a common criminal. He began to express support for the cause of the colonists in the war with Britain. During this time, Aiken claims to have overheard a conversation in Oxford that changed his life. Several men in a tavern were discussing the war. One of them noted that the war depended on the British Navy and that the Navy greatly depended on just a few dockyards that dotted the southern coast of England. If something happened to those dockyards, the Navy would be devastated. From that, Aiken finally saw his path to fame and fortune. He would burn down all the main Navy yards in Britain Portsmouth, Plymouth, Chatham, Woolwich, and Deptford. Britain would have to end the war 
Aiken could then slip away to America, where he would be hailed as a hero of the revolution, perhaps even receiving a commission as an officer in the Continental Army. In early 1776, Aiken found work as a journeyman painter at the Portsmouth docks. He spent much of his time there drawing sketches of the dockyard defenses and designing devices that would start a fire after a time delay. Now, the idea of causing a fire in a dockyard was a realistic one. While the Navy had defenses against an enemy attack, they were not really prepared for saboteurs. Anyone could enter the dockyards without being searched. Bringing in equipment to start a fire was quite possible. One would have to start multiple fires at once all over the dockyards to be successful, though. Otherwise, bucket brigades would probably douse the fire relatively quickly and limit its damage. Further, even if he could destroy one dockyard, that would almost certainly put the others on high alert. These heightened defenses would prevent similar attacks on other dockyards. The only way to pull off this sort of destruction would be to have a team of saboteurs hit all the dockyards on the same night. However, Aiken had no ability to plan such an aggressive and coordinated attack. He planned to do everything himself. At first, he hoped he might get to Philadelphia to get the Continental Congress to back his plan. But he had no money to get to America, even if that was possible given the trade embargo. Instead, he opted to go to Paris to meet with Silas Dean, the American agent. Aiken found a small sailboat that took him across the British Channel. After several attempts, he obtained an audience with Dean. By this time, British agents were watching Dean's residence at all times. His valet was also a British spy. But none of them seemed to see Aiken as any more than a commoner who was no threat to anything or even worth reporting. Dean was also skeptical. Still, after two meetings and reviewing Aiken's sketches for a time-delayed firebomb, he sent Aiken back to England without any real assistance, but with the view that, sure, maybe this guy can destroy something. He gave Aiken the equivalent of about three pounds sterling and a French passport so that he could return to Britain. He also gave him the name of a local contact in Britain, Edward Bancroft. Aiken claims that Dean gave him a promissory note for 300 pounds sterling, though there is no good evidence that this actually happened. Although Dean might have hoped that there was some small chance that Aiken might do some damage with his time-delay devices, the execution of the plot was shockingly amateurish. Aiken attempted to get several of the devices built to set his fires. The device itself was rather simple. It was a candle inside a tin box with small air holes to let in air. When the candle burned down low enough, it would open up a lower compartment filled with turpentine or other combustibles to an open flame. This would cause the box to explode and set everything on fire within a few feet of it. Aiken attempted to have several of them built, but he only ever got one of them completed. On December 6, 1776, Aiken entered the main rope house of the Portsmouth dockyard planning to set a time-delayed fire there. Since he only had equipment to start one fire, he planned to light the candle, then rush back to town and set his rented room on fire. 
That way, the firefighters would be busy putting out his fire when the alarm for the dockyard fire came. He spent too long putting the combustibles in place and soon found himself locked inside the rope house for the night. After trying to find a way out, he eventually had to bang on the door until someone could get a key and let him out. He had not set the fire and simply claimed to be a curious visitor who got stuck inside. The guards apparently bought his story and let him go. The next morning, Aiken tried again, but this time tried to set his room on fire before leaving for the dockyard. His landlady immediately smelled smoke and confronted him. After some argument, he left his room for the dockyard. He spent the day having a few drinks and buying more matches. In the early afternoon, he entered the rope house, which was already empty for the day. He started three small fires, then walked out before any of the fires grew large enough for anyone to notice. His fire did damage the rope house, but did not spread beyond that. Aiken fled town, hitchhiking to London over the next 24 hours. Once there, he headed straight to the home of Edward Bancroft, Silas Dean's agent in London. Now, you may recall from last week, Dean had been using Bancroft to send him information from London, but Bancroft was a double agent, sending virtually useless information to Dean and keeping British officials informed of everything that happened in France. Aiken arrived at Bancroft's store, telling him that Dean had promised him that Bancroft would give him a safe house and 300 pounds sterling to complete his missions in the other dockyards. This put Bancroft in a difficult position. If he helped Aiken, the British officials might convict him of being part of this American plot. If he did not, the Americans might suspect him of being a British agent, as he was. Bancroft sent him away, but agreed to meet with Aiken later. At that other meeting, Bancroft finally informed Aiken that he would be no part of this scheme. With that, Aiken left still determined to complete his self-appointed mission. Without money, he had to turn back to petty theft to support himself. He held up in Bristol for a while and began casing the Plymouth dockyards. All the time, he was certain that a national manhunt would track him down and hang him. In fact, though his fire in Portsmouth had destroyed the rope house, the damage was limited. Investigators had no clue who did it, and were leaning toward it being accidental. They had interviewed over a dozen suspects. The investigation was leading nowhere. Aiken, though, saw himself as a one-man destruction force. In mid-January, he tried to set fires on three merchant ships and a warehouse in Bristol. The fires didn't really do anything, but discovery of combustibles on the three ships alerted the town that they had an arsonist. A few days later, Aiken set another fire, which managed to burn several warehouses before the locals could extinguish it. Once everyone realized that there really was a serial arsonist, panic set in. The government offered a £1,000 reward, then doubled it to 2000 Eventually, the reward reached almost £3,000 sterling. Witnesses started to put together the behavior of this strange Scotsman who had been lurking around Portsmouth and Bristol just before the fires. He became known as John the Painter, as officials tried to track him down. Lord Germain used this panic to push through a bill in Parliament 
allowing officials to imprison suspected American combatants without trial. The bill was really aimed at privateers primarily, but the panic over the arson helped shepherd this bill through Parliament. Within a couple of weeks, Aiken was in jail. His luck ran out after he robbed a local shop. The owner tracked him down, and when caught, Aiken had several of the stolen items on him, as well as various tools for his use in the acts of arson. And the owner suspected that he might be the arsonist that everyone was looking for. While in jail, several witnesses identified him. Officials were confident they had their man, but they still did not know why he did it or whether he had accomplices. Because Aitken refused to talk, authorities tricked him into providing the information they needed. They introduced a man as a possible witness who could not identify Aiken. Afterwards, the man struck up a conversation with the prisoner and showed him some kindness. He offered to come visit him in jail and talk some more. In those discussions, Aiken bragged about his visits to America, his meetings with Silas Dean and Edward Bancroft, and his work for the American cause. Of course, the man he trusted turned out to be an informant working for the prosecution. The trial began on March 6, 1777, and by local standards was a very long one, taking nearly seven hours. The prosecutors indicted him for three offenses related to the fires in Portsmouth, but they did not indict him for the Bristol fires. Some have said this was to avoid having to pay the rewards that had been offered for the capture of the person convicted of those crimes. The court had five prosecutors and 19 witnesses. Aiken was not entitled to a defense lawyer and had no information before trial started about the evidence to be used against him. The jury deliberated for about a second before finding him guilty and the judge sentenced him to hang. After his trial, Aiken figured that if he was going to hang, he might as well hang as an American hero rather than a common criminal. He spent the next few days giving his story to men who would publish biographies of his life and sell them on the streets of London. He told them he was an American agent working for Dean and Bancroft. Although Dean was safely in Paris, Bancroft was in London. Of course, he denied knowing anything about this, but the public now thought that he might be an American spy. The main thing that saved him from arrest was that the British government knew he was a double agent and still wanted to use him. They ended up allowing him to flee to Paris, where he could keep tabs on Dean and continue to provide intelligence to the British government. On March 10, 1777, four days after his trial, officials took Aiken back to the Bristol dockyards where they had assembled a gallows. It was over 60 feet high, made from a ship's yardarm, the tallest ever used in Britain. After the hanging, they gibbeted his body, which meant covering it with tar for preservation, then putting it in a cage and hanging it on public display. There he would remain as a warning to anyone else who would try to interfere with the British war effort. Next week, we return to America as George Washington's army continues its retreat across New Jersey with the British Army in close pursuit. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. For those of you who listen to this podcast shortly after it's released and who live in the Philadelphia area, the American Revolution Roundtable of South Jersey is holding an event at the Battleship New Jersey. They are hosting a presentation by author Tim McGrath about Commodore John Barry. So, what does a World War II battleship have to do with a Revolutionary War naval officer? Well, not much, I guess. But it's a pretty cool location to have an event, and Mr. McGrath is an expert on Revolutionary War naval history. For anyone interested in going, the event is at 2 p.m. on October 13, 2019, on the Battleship New Jersey in Camden, New Jersey. Also, a reminder that I will be presenting at History Camp Virginia on November 16th. I am only one of dozens of volunteer presenters who will be spending the day talking about a wide range of history topics. The event is at George Mason University. If anyone's interested in going to that, go to historycamp.org for more information on how to buy tickets. Today's episode was a look at a man who gets relatively little attention from history. When we think of historical figures, we usually think of the ones who made momentous changes to the course of history, or who at least behaved in gallant and honorable ways. James Aiken was none of that. By all accounts, he spent most of his life as a thief and a liar. Like many commoners of the era, he set out into a world with few skills or resources to compete in a brutal society with few opportunities. We often love reading about historical figures who overcame the odds to become great men. But the odds were that most men who attempted greatness failed to achieve it. Many thousands probably found their end, much like Aitken did, at the end of a hangman's noose or some other ignominious death. That's the depressing reality of the history that we largely ignore. Aiken is largely remembered at all today because of a couple of sensationalist books written just after his death and based on a few days' worth of interviews made just before his death. In the main episode, I alluded to the fact that Aiken probably made up many of the things in his story to make himself seem more impressive. Because he was a commoner without note, there is little other contemporary record of his life other than his school attendance and criminal trial. Despite the lack of much record, this week's book recommendation is a review of James Aiken's life. It is called John the Painter, Terrorist of the American Revolution by Jessica Warner. 
The book, first published in 2004, covers the life of Aiken as thoroughly as any book can, given the limited information. In places, Warner theorizes about some parts of Aiken's life based on the norms of the times. When she does speculate, she makes that pretty clear to the reader. The book is also pretty well documented, with 40 pages of notes following about 250 pages of text. So, if you want to read more about the life of James Aiken and the world in which he lived, you will want to read the book John the Painter by Jessica Warner. My online recommendation this week is an ebook. It's actually a copy of the original book I just talked about, published by John Wilkes about Aiken. It is called The Life of James Aiken, commonly called John the Painter. It's a short 64 page book published in 1777, just after Aiken's death, and provides the primary source for almost all future work on the man. Google Books has reproduced a copy of the original book, well, actually the second edition, which was printed just weeks after the first edition sold out. It's interesting to see what contemporaries read about the subject, even if all the facts are not quite accurate. You can find this book by going to Google Books at books.google.com and searching for James Aiken, John the Painter. You may have to go down the list a bit to find the one that has the complete text. If that's too complicated, I've also put a link directly to the book on my website, amrevpodcast.com. Once you get there, you can either read the book online or download the free ebook for offline reading. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.